you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And so it's really about taking a look at where are we at today and why this, the, the city is in the place that we are in. And how do we intentionally begin to, to change that narrative um, and invest in their spaces? Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. My guest this week is one of the bright young faces of the Chicago City Council, Alderman Jesse Fuentes of the 26th Ward, which includes Humboldt Park, West Humboldt Park, Logan Square, Hermosa, and West Town. Alderman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, friend. You are the first woman ever to serve as 26th Ward Alderman and the first gay woman. On election night, you said you broke the glass ceiling. You called it a huge win for the interests you represent. What exactly do you plan to do for those interests? Absolutely. I think that this seat is a seat that allows for women, for LGBTQ young people to find representation in who they are and what their needs are in the community. We have many young people in our community who are in need of employment, who are in need of public safety measures. Um, we have women who are single mothers who have been leading our work for a very long time, who are in need of housing stability. Um, it is uh, the ability to be able to address the very issues that all of our residents face with a interconnected lens that allow us to see the different identities that play out. Uh, but it's also important for folks to find comfort in that they can come to my office and that they can disclose some of the issues that they're facing and that they have an older person um, that can understand it because of the lived experience that I have. And so it's all about being able to have someone that's willing to listen um, and willing to work for all of the residents of the 26th Ward. Um, and I believe we're doing a great job already. You avoided a runoff with 54.4% of the vote against two challengers. You replaced veteran alderman Roberto Maldonado. He dropped out at the last minute. He endorsed you after serving for 13 mm -hmm. years. I'll bet that was gratifying. Has he been helpful to you in the transition? Yeah, absolutely. Maldonado is someone who is a wealth of knowledge, right? He's been in an elected office for a very long time. Um, he also has been living in our community for a very long time. So he's been extremely helpful um, and his endorsement uh, meant a lot. We worked together um, on many different issues when he was the older person and I was an organizer and a policy advocate. So to know that out of a race of three individuals that he believed that I was the best fit for the 26th Ward in terms of what the future would mean for our families meant a great deal. 
What was his biggest piece of advice to you? Well, you know, we all know how much uh, Maldonado centers affordable housing and the sustainability of our community. Um, and he, he wanted to ensure that there was an older person who would stay focused in ensuring that we are sustaining families and fighting gentrification. Um, and so he asked me to stay focused. <laughs> The story of your upbringing and the challenges of poverty and drug addiction and violence that you overcame, it's an inspiration, I'm sure, to the constituents you represent. Your father oh, went yeah. to jail for drugs and weapons possession. How old were you at that time? I can only imagine what impact that had on your childhood. Yeah, I was, I was pretty young. I was probably about six or seven years old. Um, and you know, any child of an incarcerated parent, right. just has a different lived experience. Um, that absence creates a void in a young person's life. And to have, uh, two parents that had suffered from substance abuse also creates a household in which there's very little guidance, right. Um, because at that time, my parents were suffering from their own historical and generational trauma and coping with that, um, through drug addiction, but for me, I was I was lucky, right, to have a community that really wrapped their arms around me, to have an organization that invested in me and didn't judge me for what I looked like, uh, my criminal record or even the zip code that I resided in, but rather seeing a world of possibilities and a young person that was truly just trying to figure out their purpose. Um, and I tell folks all the time, I was lucky to to stumble upon a small alternative school called Albisu Campos Puerto Rican High School a school that had culturally congruent curriculum with bicultural and bilingual staff members that truly like took time to invest in me. I'm, I'm proof of concept, right? That when we invest in our young people, that they can become agents of change in our community. And so, yeah, I, I have a juvenile record and an early adult record. And, uh, you know, I made mistakes when I was young because I was too trying to figure out what does it mean to, to be an adult and manage all of the emotional um, and social um, things that I was facing in a, in a healthy way because I wasn't taught how to how to deal with those in a healthy way in my household. Uh, but you know, I utilize my lived experience to tell young people that it doesn't your mistakes and the decisions that you made early in life does not have to determine your entire life, right? And I am proof of that. That well, one can be an elected official. What mistakes did you official. make? Where did you cross the law? Oh, I, I got into I got into a fight with a kid at school. Uh, I was a young person that was extremely angry. They had made a comment about uh, my mom being addicted to drugs, and you know, I I responded by by getting into a fist fight. I was six, I was seventeen years old. Um, got into a fight in school, and you know, my my second my second um, charge, which is one when I was eighteen, I was working at a movie theater and I comped a bunch of tickets for my friends. Um, and, you know, when you work in a the movie theater, you shouldn't comp tickets for your friends. But that's hardly a, a huge criminal act. Did you what what penalty did you face for that? Oh, I, I had to do like community service hours. OK, now your parents, yeah, you I've, mentioned both struggled with drug addiction. That must have changed mm -hmm. everything about their behavior towards you as parents. Yeah, I, I mean, look, it, it likely does. Anyone who suffers from substance abuse, um, their their personality and how they behave is altered, right? Uh, because they become solely focused 
on um, what gets them by, which is the drug that they're addicted to. Um, but I, you know, I'm extremely happy that my, my mother has been sober for a while now. Um, and, she, you know, she was active in my campaign. She collected the most signatures, made the most phone calls um, to help me win my candidacy. Uh, my father passed a little over a year ago. Um, but of course, right. Addiction changes anyone's ability to parent appropriately. Um, and that made the world of a difference in my childhood. Right. So how did you manage uh, to survive the enormity of that challenge? When we hear stories like this, they often have a very different and bad ending. How did you mm -hmm. overcome it? I had a community that chose to invest in me, right? I had a school that um, chose to provide me the social and emotional support that I needed to overcome that. Uh, but I was also introduced uh, to activism, right? I was politicized in high school and I took a lot of that anger um, and a lot of that concern around drug addiction um, to combat it at a systemic level. Right. To be able to take on systems of racism and oppression that cause one to be addicted to drugs in the first place. And so I became an activist at an early age. I was 17 years old fighting for the release of political prisoners, fighting gentrification, um, calling out uh, gun violence and demanding for safety in our community. I had took pain and turned it into propane and just became an activist. Right. And I got lucky to have people who had introduced me to a world of organizing and movement. Um, and it was a world that I had fallen in love with because that had become the place where I engaged in the process of healing. You moved out of your parents' house at the age of 15. What was the breaking yeah. point and where <laughs> did you go? Uh, so I stood um, with a friend who had a family that, that took me in at an early age. Um, and for me, it was really about uh, just wanting to to be in a place that was a little more peaceful, less chaotic. Um, and I had already started working, right? I started working at the age of 15. Um, and, you know, when you grow up in circumstances like I do, you just have to grow up early. Um, and so I had a maturity level at the age of 15 that most 15-year-olds do not. Um, and because I worked um, and I was already quite independent, um, I, I wanted to live on my own and, and kind of just figure out what life was I going to live that wasn't going to be the, the life of, of my parents or, or any other um, household that felt as dysfunctional. Did you have a period of time where you weren't talking to your parents? No, I always talked to my parents, um, even, you know, in the midst of all of it. I loved my parents. And I think that even at a young age, I understood that you know, the reason they were going through what they were going through is because they were also in immense amount of pain um, from their own childhoods, right? And and how they were parented. I mean, my, fa my father migrated uh, here from Cuba at the age of 19 all alone. Uh, my mother was raised by a, a single mother who had seven other children. And so um, I, I always wanted to be able to hold on to that relationship, um, even in moments in which they weren't the healthiest. I would say that, you know, I was able to set some very clear boundaries for myself. Um, and I, I learned how to get better at that as an adult. And that when, when the relationship doesn't um, become as healthy as you want it to be, how do you create the distance that's necessary to take care of yourself? And so I learned very early just how to take care of myself. How did you forgive them? What helped you to forgive them or have you forgiven them? 
Oh, yeah. I've, I've forgiven, you know, the both of my parents. I think that when you understand that, you know, drug addiction is, is beyond um, an individual's control, right? And, and it, it's a disease. It, it's an illness that we have to help folks overcome. Um, it, it was no longer about, like, my anger with my mother, but rather helping her also overcome her pain. Um, and the same thing with my father. And so it was, it was really about once, once I had become politically conscious and understood this at a much broader level than, than just the individuals in my life, they had been forgiven, um, a while ago. Right. And it was about what role do I play in their healing, um, and in their process of recovery and in this moment, sustaining that recovery. But kids blame themselves for what the parent doesn't do. Right? Don't they at a certain point do that? How did you stop mm-hmm. blaming yourself for what they weren't doing for you? Yeah, I think it was it was the moment that I had um, become politically conscious and had in, engaged in a process of healing, right? And to be able to have the tools to learn that this is not about me, right? First of all, a child is, is too young and incapable of making an adult behave the way they behave, right? And I think that young people have to be able to understand that their parents' behavior has nothing to do with them, but everything about what they have gone through and their inability to manage their emotions um, and parent properly. And I think that when I had become when I had become an organizer, and again, I'm, I'm like 16, 17 years old, um, yeah, I, I had begun to understand that what my parents were going through had nothing to do with me, but rather, you know, their inner child that needed reparenting and, and how were they going to take care of themselves, but also that that was not my responsibility and it never should have uh, been my responsibility. One of your aldermanic challengers used your expulsion and fight in high school in a negative mailer about you that was bankrolled by the Fraternal Order of Police. It obviously yep. didn't work. You're here today. Why do you think it backfired? <laughs> well, I think that um, you, we live in a ward with families and with individuals who all have someone in their life, right, who may have made a mistake. Um, but that mistake doesn't define who they are. More importantly, I've, I've been an organizer in this community for over a decade. I've, I've been a school administrator in both community schools that are in this ward. I've been a policy advocate. I chaired the Puerto Rican agenda. People know, right, that I'm an organizer, I'm a leader, and that that record that Julian Jumpin Perez put out in that mailer was a very small snippet of who I was as a young person. And that if we were going to tell people that someone like me with a juvenile and early adult record as long ago as it was, because that record is also over a a decade um, old, that if that was going to say that I was ineligible to be an elected official, then what are we telling every young person that in this moment needs hope? In this moment needs to be told that you can do anything right? That you can be an agent of change. You can be a leader. That mailer was telling the entire ward that every young person that makes a mistake is unworthy of a seat like the aldermanic one. Um, and I don't think that people in the world were having it, but more importantly, I played a ground game. I knocked on doors. I built relationships. I was working on restoring trust. By the time that mailer had come out, I had knocked the ward three times. 
people knew who I who I was. They knew my personality. They knew the vision I had for the 26th Ward. I had answered the difficult questions, um, and that's what got me through. Right? I I did not bother to return any negative mailers. I because that that approach wasn't going to work. Right? People just needed to understand the job I was trying to get done and who they were. Do you elected. have a grudge against the FOP for that, though. No, no. I mean, the FOP does what the FOP does. I mean, that's that's their MO. Um, what does I'm it say about FOP them candidate. and their president, uh, John Catanzara? I, I think that, you know, the fact that they utilize um, old Democratic machine tactics to win elections uh, says more about their candidates um, than their negative mailers. After the expulsion, you transferred to the alternative school, Dr. Pedro Albizo Campos High School. You started writing poetry, connected with your roots. You joined a campaign against uh, gentrification that was pushing out local residents, and you literally turned your life around. What made the difference for you? I think it was having a place in which I I truly had a sense of belonging, right? And I think that that was absent my entire life, right? I was was just strolling through Chicago public schools, just trying to figure out what my home life looked like, Um, had friends, but but never felt like there was a place that I could call home, a place where there was a sense of belonging. I think that once I became an organizer and a poet, um, and had that space, right, of folks that had similar lived experiences, but too had that like passion and intention of of overcoming um, those experiences to just do better, not for themselves, not just for themselves, but for community and for for the entire city, is where I finally felt like I had begun to have purpose. Right, it, my my life just felt so much more meaningful, and I had felt a sense of gratification that I had never in my life felt before. Um, and, and that for me was, was the turning point, right? That moment was extremely pivotal to finally feel like I was home. Um, that, you know, I had, I had people that understood me, um, without any judgment is, is what definitely made the difference. Right. And it was, it was a world that in that moment I understood I never wanted to leave. You went on to become Dean of Students at the Alternative School. Then you moved to Roberto Clemente Academy. You became a champion Mm -hmm. for troubled kids like you were and helped them understand that the poor decisions they sometimes make don't define them, as you said. Which brings us now to the position you hold now. You're chairing a youth subcommittee at a time when the city is struggling with these teen takeovers or teen trends, as Mayor Brandon Johnson likes to call them. There was a very destructive teen takeover the other night in the South Loop that devolved into the looting of a convenience store and led to 40 arrests. What does the city Mm -hmm. need to do to avoid these kinds of destructive events that we've been struggling with for years? Absolutely. We need to invest in young people, right? They need to be able to have spaces in their community in which they can experience joy, in which they can build one another, in which they can learn about the world around them and who they are and where they come from. A lot of our young people currently live in communities that have historically been disinvested in our resource deserts, food deserts, housing instability exists 
in a lot of the communities that they come from. And so when we think about young people who are engaging in risky behaviors, we also have to think about the homes that they come from, the communities that they come from, and how do we begin to invest in their development, their social emotional healing, and their futures. Uh, the committee that I currently chair is extremely important because it really considers how are we going to grow a workforce that truly wraps around our young people and opens up a world of possibilities for them, right? We have One Summer Chicago. It's a great program. We want to be able to triple those numbers, but we also really want to be able to consider how do we create year-round employment? Because to have just a summer program that employs young people, engages them just for a season. But what happens throughout the school year when it's leading up to the summer and they have already engaged in behavior that, you know, a program like this is delayed in taking them out of. And so we want to be able to invest in in their ability to join the workforce year round. But also we have to think about the programming that our schools offer. We have to think about what type of resources and centers that we want to put in their communities so that they can experience joy and happiness and engage in productive activity. And so it's really about taking a look at where are we at today and why this, the, the city is in the place that we are in and how do we intentionally begin to, to change that narrative um, and invest in their spaces. But all of that is going to take time to build places for them in their communities. What do we do in the meantime to stop this kind of behavior? Well, in the meantime, we engage our stakeholders. We engage our schools, our churches, our youth organizations, and we begin to rethink our strategy. And how do we scale some of the resources that we have now Um without without any funding, right? How do we get people to invest in our young people and make sure that we are uh, allowing them to have the programming and the social emotional support that they deserve? And so that is a lot of the work that I've been doing in the 26th Ward. I've developed a public safety committee that includes all of our stakeholders, churches, community centers, violence prevention, interventionists, uh, substance abuse counselors, case managers. And in my public safety committee, we are data driven. We are looking at um, a lot of the things that are happening in our ward. And we're beginning to strategize what are some of the things that we've been doing that, that work? What's not working? How do we let that go? And then how do we re, how do we develop a new way of engaging our young people? Um, you know, technology plays a role in everything. The, the way young people um, are engaged in conversations today are very different than how I was engaged at the age of 16 and 17, right? And so it's about how are we rethinking um, best practices. And my public safety committee, we meet every month to discuss what's happening in the ward and how are we developing strategies to ensure that there's safety. I convened this committee and it was one of the first meetings I had after inauguration and we prepared for one of the largest festivals in my community, the Puerto Rican festival. And for the first time in about a decade, we had the Puerto Rican festival with, with zero, um, fatalities, zero shootings in my ward, but that speaks to our ability to organize, mobilize, and really rethink um, our practices to be able to ensure safety. And I think it's a model that we can replicate across the city. Um, and, and it's one that I'm willing to lead. After the April 15th downtown rampage and crime wave by a group of young people that went viral on social media, Mayor Johnson was criticized for condemning the behavior on one hand, but saying it was not 
constructive to demonize youth who otherwise have been starved of opportunities in their communities. Earlier this week, he risked another backlash when he scolded reporters who questioned his use of the word trend and instead referred to what happened Sunday night in the South Loop as a mob action. He said there's a history in this city and it was not appropriate to refer to children as, as he put it, baby Al Capones. Do you agree with him or is this some kind of a message of permissive parenting? No, I absolutely agree with the mayor. Um, well, we're 100 percent aligned in that we cannot demonize young people and begin to create narratives that they're further going to internalize. Right. All young people have internalized much of the narratives that have been produced about who they are, and where they come from and the zip codes that they reside in. Um, do we do we condone the behavior? Absolutely not. And we are working to find ways to ensure that we could deter that behavior. But it is not helpful to demonize our young people and to call them mini Al Capones and allow them to internalize those narratives about who people believe they are. But doesn't the city have to put its foot down on this kind of behavior? You certainly can't tolerate it. The city has to invest in young people. The city has to dare to imagine that we have brilliant black, brown, indigenous young people in the city of Chicago, and they are waiting for opportunity. They are waiting for safe spaces. In fact, they are demanding for it. And we have an obligation, a moral obligation to invest in them. And so we want to put a stop to what's happening here dare to invest in the communities that they come from, the schools that they go to, and the centers that they attend. We have to invest in them. You're also the lead negotiator for the city in the drive to phase out the subminimum wage for tip workers. You're among the chief sponsors mm -hmm. of a recently mm -hmm. introduced ordinance that gives Chicago restaurants and bars two years to phase out the lower wage for tip workers. How are those negotiations going? You say you're willing to accept a longer phase-in, but, but that four years is the absolute limit. Yeah, so, you know, for us, we are in the city of Chicago where our sub-minimum wage is not as far to our minimum wage as other cities have experienced across the country. San Francisco had a much larger gap, and other cities who have eliminated the sub-minimum wage also had a larger gap, which is what required them to do a four- to five-year phase-in, uh, because it would, you know, the, the increase annually will be much larger for those cities. Uh, we are at $9.48, and our minimum wage is $15. Um, the gap is not as large as, as folks imagine. And so we truly believe that a two to three year phase in is possible, feasible and doable for the businesses of the city of Chicago. But more importantly, we have to also acknowledge uh, what sub-minimum wage is rooted in, right? The ability to provide cheap wages to freed slaves. Um, the Pullman industry eliminated the sub-minimum wage and the restaurant industry should have done it then and we didn't. Uh, tip uh, workers should have reached minimum wage when we had the fight for 15, but they were also carved out then. Um, it's important to be able to ensure that folks who are working for tips uh, in this moment, have financial sustainability. We are talking about this industry being dominated by women, black and brown women, who on a day-to-day -day basis fight discrimination and sexual harassment just to earn their tips. Uh, they deserve to be made whole. They deserve the minimum wage so that they can have the financial sustainability that is needed to provide for their families. 
but also in the city of Chicago, we employ over 57,000 young people in our hospitality industry. You want to talk about making the city a safer space? Then let's get these young people to minimum wage and continue to open up the workforce for them so they can be financial contributors to their household. Um, this particular ordinance is extremely important to being able to live up to the city of Chicago that we all want to live in, that we all see our families thriving in. Rent is going up. It's difficult to live in the city of Chicago. I mean, the average rent for a one bedroom in my ward today is $1,700. Property taxes have tripled uh, in our communities. And so when we're thinking about making sure that we can sustain families, we also have to make sure that they're making the wages that is needed to live in the city of Chicago. You know and have lived the burden of being homeless. You have a homeless encampment, a tent encampment in Humboldt Park. The mayor campaigned on a promise to raise the real estate transfer tax on high-end home sales to create a dedicated funding source to combat homelessness. At a recent hearing, the now-departed Housing Commissioner Marisa Navarra said there was a marginal or modified tax plan under consideration that would dramatically cut the revenue take uh, by applying the tax, which is a triple tax to the current level, only to that portion of the sale over a million dollars. So if a home is sold for $1.2 million, the higher tax applies to the 200000 The other million is taxed mm-hmm. at the same rate now. Are you willing to accept that? I think that we are in conversations about what that looks like. Um, And again, in in any case in which we are um, trying to produce permanent revenues or like in the case of one fair wage, which we're trying to include uh, increase the minimum wage, uh, we are open to the conversation in collaborating with folks around what is best. Uh, the one thing that we know for sure is that we need a permanent revenue source that's going to build housing to combat homelessness in the city of Chicago. How we get there um, should be a collaborative approach. And so we're open to the conversation. I know the mayor has said that he's also open to the conversation, um, but for Bring Chicago Home, it's not a matter of if we're going to do it, it's about how. And I think that the conversations we're having right now is how are we going to do it? And with legislative leaders dead set against this tax, the only avenue left is a binding referendum on the ballot. Do you have the 26 city council votes needed to get this binding question on the ballot? We are confident that we do. Yeah. And do you have any doubt that Chicago voters, if they do get the opportunity, will approve it? I believe that Chicago voters want to be able to house each of our unhoused neighbors as much as the folks that are championing this bill. Um, We will make sure that we are campaigning and that we are properly educating folks and not allowing the false narratives uh, to take over. Um, And I believe that the city of Chicago will bring Chicago home. The real estate industry and downtown business interests, particularly owners of the more than half-empty downtown office buildings, will surely mount a very big-money campaign to stop this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we we expect that, for sure. (laughs) And what what money are you going to spend on the other side to stop them? Uh, Well, you know, we are really good at Uh, getting to the doors and having actual conversations with folks. And so, you know, the real estate industry, 
is going to spend a lot of money. And, you know, I am not going to claim that we're going to be able to raise more money than the real estate industry because uh, it's not real. Uh, but the one thing that we do do is meet our people where they're at um, and, and knock on their doors and, and meet them at their homes. And that is that is what we will continue to do. Our people deserve to have real conversations with real people. Um, uh, and, you know, we know that signs don't vote, advertisement don't vote, mailers don't vote. If they did, I would have lost my election. Yeah. Treatment, not trauma, is the plan to create an alternative citywide non-police response to mental health emergencies and reopen the shuttered mental health clinics. How do we pay for that? We have to make sure that we are dedicating a revenue source um, in the budget, we are having conversations about the vacancies that currently exist um, in the Chicago Police Department, vacancies that have been there for a long time. Um, but, you know, we are also in conversations about how do we find the money um, in other places. We know that we need to reopen our mental health clinics. And that's extremely important to us. I mean, the, the type of historical and generational trauma that exists in the communities where mental health centers were closed, we have seen the impact. Right. We have exacerbated that trauma and we know um, that police response is not the appropriate response, that these folks need professionals who can de-escalate them, make sure that they're getting the appropriate support, um, that they have mental health clinics that they can go to, um, that they are public mental health clinics because no one should be paying two hundred dollars for a session uh, to get well. And so you know, it's it's priority for us. It will be top conversation during budget negotiations. Um, I'm extremely excited to support my colleague, all the person Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez, in this effort. Um, and again, this is also a priority of the mayor, right? And so we're going so to. So you want the mayor to, to close happen. out the 1,700 police vacancies permanently? I want close to them find. Out? I want to find the revenue to be able to support treatment, not trauma. We are having conversations about what that looks like. But, I mean, do you want him to close out those vacancies? We have 1,700 fewer officers than when Lori Lightfoot took office. Should the mayor eliminate those vacancies and not fill the no, job? But those, those vacancies have existed for a while, right? That We have not been able to fill those vacancies. We continue to fund vacancies um, that are not, that are, we have not kept up with retirement. Right. And so it's a question is, do we continue to fund vacancies that we cannot fill? Right? It's not it's not me wanting to close seven, a number amount of positions is are we going to continue to fund vacancies that we have not been able to fill? Is it financially sound and intelligent to continue to fill positions that no one's taking? That's but that's the, the question. Crime that I think rate that we, is still we've been having high. A, the crime rate is mm -hmm. still high and crime is still up and violent crime is up, even if shootings and uh, and murders are down slightly. How do you sell that? I think that we continue to have conversations about ways that we invest in community that can also deter crime in our community. Right. The, the police do not prevent crime. They respond to crime. We have to have conversations about what are we doing to prevent crime in the city of Chicago. 
how are we investing in communities? How are we allowing for people to be financially sound? How are we ensuring that there's housing stability, right? Police officers don't prevent crime. They, they intervene once it has already happened. And so the question is, how are we investing in preventing crime? Because we all want to live in a safer city. We all want to build a better, safer Chicago. And so we have to talk about how are we investing also in prevention. The mayor campaigned on a promise to raise taxes, fines, and fees by $800 million to help bankroll a billion dollars worth of investments in people, as you talk about. How much of that is he going to get, do you think? The business community is mobilizing against many of these taxes. Uh, I think that we are in conversations, and I'm sure the mayor is having a lot of conversations about how we how we get those funds. Um, I think it's, it's too early to say how much she gets. I think that folks are currently trying to make all of the projections that they can with, again, being collaborative, building relationships, um, and trying to be at the table together to get the work done. Alderman Jesse Fuentes, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your very fascinating story and an inspirational story at that. You're a very strong person to have survived all of that, and you're an inspiration to a lot of young people in this city. And we will see you all next week. I appreciate you, Frank. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.